If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 2. As we continue looking at the Gospel of John this morning, we'll be in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. In the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky at one point puts the protagonist of the story Alyosha Karamazov, in a setting in which he was hearing the words, John chapter 2, the words that we just read, he was sitting there and standing there, maybe on his knees, and hearing John chapter 2 being read. And as he was hearing the scripture read, he thinks to himself, Ah, yes, I was missing that. I didn't want to miss it. I love that passage. It's Cana of Galilee, the first miracle. Ah, that miracle. Ah, that sweet miracle. It was not men's grief but their joy Christ visited. He worked his first miracle to help men's gladness. He who loves men loves their gladness too. So as we think about this passage of Jesus at the wedding of Cana and Galilee, we'll consider the text under three main points. First of all, Jesus at a wedding. Secondly, the purpose of the miracle And then, thirdly, a wedding to which this wedding points. So we have Jesus at a wedding, the purpose of the miracle, and then we have a wedding to which this wedding points. And so at the risk of stating the obvious, this text shows us Jesus at a wedding. The sinless Son of God became a man and lived perfectly, walking with God the Father, living every day in intimate fellowship with Him. And He was invited to this wedding, and he attended this wedding. Now, what is a wedding? A wedding is a ceremony in which a marriage is solemnized, and there's often a celebration that follows, and that certainly was the case here, as is evident by the text. And so our Lord, the Word made flesh, shows up at this wedding, miraculously provides for the continuance of the celebration, 
thereby indicating his approval of marriage as an institution, his approval of the joining of these two particular people in marriage, and his approval also of the celebration of marriage. Now, as we consider the presence of Jesus at this wedding and his approval of marriage, we need to think, first of all, a little bit about what marriage is and, therefore, just what it was to which Jesus was giving his approval. Marriage is a holy and divine institution. In fact, marriage was the first institution which was ordained among mankind, ordained by the Lord God himself, and blessed it and willed that the husband and the wife should cleave to one another inseparably and live the rest of their lives together in peace and harmony. It's the union of one man and one woman who covenant and consent together to be husband and wife for life. And we read about this institution as we were reading our text in Genesis chapter 2 earlier this morning. At the dawn of time, when God created Adam in the garden and before sin entered the world, God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. This is the first hint of anything that was not good. If you remember the, the creation accounts, the Lord said, after the days in which he had created, it was good. The Lord saw that it was good. The Lord saw that it was good. He saw that it wasn't good for the man to be alone. And so we read there that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned the into a woman, the rib that he had taken from the flesh of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And of course, that chapter closes with these words. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so marriage is an ancient institution ordained by God in which one man and one woman are united by covenanting and consenting to be husband and wife for life. To borrow the language of the Book of Common Prayer, marriage was ordained for the procreation of children to be brought up in the nurture of the Lord, ordained for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication. It was ordained for the mutual help of society, for the mutual society help and comfort that the one ought to have with the other, both in prosperity and adversity. And as Scripture continues, we read in Hebrews 13:4 that marriage is to be held in honor among all, and that the bed is undefiled, and that fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And as we read together from Ephesians chapter 5, we find that the marriage is not just something that God instituted for the good of human society. But rather, human marriage points to an even greater reality, the relationship between Christ and his church. And so this is the institution of marriage. This is the institution and the celebration of which Jesus was giving his approval and his blessing on this occasion here in John chapter 2. And we can be sure that Jesus would not have conducted himself in such a manner if this was a celebration of something that was wicked. If this man had been saying that he was going to marry his daughter or something like that, Jesus would not have showed up. Jesus would not have provided a miracle and countenanced the celebration of this. Same could be said if this were a man claiming that he was marrying another man or something of that sort. Just because people may refer to something as a marriage doesn't make it a marriage, doesn't make it worthy of celebration. Marriage, however, as the institution was given by God, is holy and good and therefore worthy of celebration 
and joy. And it's important for us to see and to, to understand this, this aspect of celebration and joy. We certainly know in the Christian life that we're to, supposed to be serious. We know that our minds are to be above the world in one sense. We know, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, that if you've been raised up with Christ, we're to keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We're to set our minds on things above and not on things of the earth. We know, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13, that we are to fix our hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that we are to prepare our minds for action and keep sober in spirit. There's a sobriety that is to characterize us as Christians. We know that we're to be serious and sober and to not lay up treasures on earth, but rather our treasures in heaven. But with all of that said and all of that true, all of that does not undo our earthly bodily existence as men and women in the world. It was not meant to undo our earthly and bodily existence. As my father once observed, we were made to be human. How true is that? We were made to be human. It was God who made mankind. It was God who made us as male and female. It was he who saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so, yes, we must be sober. We must be godly. We must have our hearts and minds set not on seeking earthly things, but seeking the things which are above. But we must simultaneously realize that at least for the time being, we live here on earth. We must remember that grace does not undo or obliterate nature. Grace was not meant to undo or to obliterate nature. And certainly then, we are not forbidden from the godly and lawful use of those pleasures and gifts which God has authorized in his word. We're not forbidden from rejoicing in such things as may be truly rejoiced in. Indeed, to refuse to rejoice and to celebrate concerning such things as marriage can do positive harm, not only to us, but also to others. J.C. Ryle put it well when he said, The Christian who withdraws entirely from the society of his fellow men and walks the earth with a face as melancholy as if he were always attending a funeral does injury to the cause of the gospel. It is a positive misfortune to Christianity when a Christian cannot smile. A merry heart and a readiness to take part in all innocent mirth are gifts of inestimable value. They go far to soften prejudices, to take up stumbling blocks out of the way, and to make way for Christ and the gospel. Those words are worth remembering, that as Christians, we don't always have to frown like we're at a funeral. There's a time for sadness, but there is a time for joy. Solomon said it well in Ecclesiastes, that there is a time for every activity under heaven. And we're reminded here in John 2 about the wholesome goodness of the institution of marriage and the rightness of celebrating marriage, even in a fallen and sinful world. And we would not be doing justice to the text if we failed to notice the manner of the celebration that was taking place. They were drinking wine. They ran out of wine. Jesus made more wine for them. And the wine that Jesus made was of the good sort and not of the poorer variety. The head waiter's statement there in verse 10 indicates as much. He said, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And that same verb that John uses there when he, uh, that's translated in our versions, have drunk freely, 
the same verb that the uh, Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was using in Genesis 43:34 when it described Joseph's brothers feasting in Egypt with, with Benjamin after they had been reunited. And uh, said, so they feasted and drank freely with him. So what we read in Genesis 43:34, And the idea conveyed by this words, as, as John Gill put it, is not that they drank to excess, but that they drank freely. So that they were exhilarated and their spirits were cheerful, but not that their brains were intoxicated. And it shouldn't surprise us, if we know our Bibles, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus makes wine. We read, for instance, in Psalm 104, verses 15, uh, 14 and 15, uh, and it's clear that wine is a gift that ultimately comes from God. And so we read there in Psalm 104, he causes grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth. God makes these things to grow so we get food and wine, which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. God gave the gift of wine in creation and at this miracle, the Son of God, our Lord, turned the water into wine. Back in the ancient church, Chrysostom expressed it this way. He said, Wine has been given us for cheerfulness, not for drunkenness. Drunkenness, then, surely does not arise from wine, but from intemperance. Wine is bestowed upon us for no other purpose than for bodily health. But this purpose also is thwarted by immoderate use. And we all know that immoderate use of God's good gifts is bad in any regard. It's bad when it comes to drinking wine, bad when it comes to, to eating too much good food. You can be intemperate in a lot of things. And Proverbs warns us about the intemperate use of alcohol. Proverbs 23, 29, and 30, for instance. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Likewise, Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. But with that said, we must also say that the misuse of a gift of God is no argument at all for repudiating it altogether. Certainly, alcohol can be and has been abused with terrible consequences. I think we all know that. And certainly some Christians choose not to drink for good reasons. But with that said, we must never act as if those Christians who choose not to drink are more holy or more godly than those Christians who choose to drink or vice versa. The weak and the strong in the church on this issue can and must live together in the church in love without passing judgment on one another. The scriptural rule for this is found in Romans 14.3. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Likewise, Romans 14.13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. This is our rule as Christians. And so don't, uh, don't hear this sermon on John chapter 2 and say, the pastor told me to drink wine. I didn't, I didn't tell you to drink wine. So take, take what I said, take what the Bible says, and consider these things. And so Jesus' presence at the wedding of Cana and Galilee here is to be a reminder to us 
of the goodness of marriage, of the goodness of celebrating that which is truly good and wholesome, and also of the goodness of the gifts that God gives to us, even in a world that is fallen and full of sin. Writing at the time of the Reformation, Heinrich Bullinger's observation and counsel are worth considering when he said, The Lord does not require us men to be without all sense and feeling of those pleasures which he of his grace has given us to enjoy. Neither would he have us to be altogether benumbed like blocks and stocks and senseless stones. For he himself has grafted into us all the sense of feeling of good and evil and of sweet and sour. But though he speaks in such a way, he also makes the caution. says, Godly men must still take careful heed that they let not loose the reins to lust and so exceed the golden mean. For mean and measure in these allowed pleasures also is liked and looked for as in all other things. There's a, there's a mean, a mean and measure to the usage of God's good gifts. We can enjoy God's good gifts without sinning. But we can also sin by the abuse of God's gifts. So don't, don't sin by abusing the gifts of God. So we've seen Jesus at this wedding. And so then, now let's come to the, the purpose of this miracle. The purpose of this miracle. And let's, let's turn our attention then to the specifics of, of what are, what's going on here. Now we don't, we don't know for sure, but it may well be that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had some special role in this wedding celebration, as if she was involved in helping with the catering or something like that. We, we can't say for sure, but she seems to be tuned in to those kind of issues, doesn't she? she? She knows what's going on at the party. She's not just sitting out there at the distance and uh, doesn't have a clue as to, as to what's going on. She, she sees when they run out of wine, and then she also has the ears of the servants so that she can tell them what to do. And when Mary speaks... The servants apparently were listening. She tells them what to do there in verse 5 when she says, Whatever he says to you, do it. And so when the wine is gone, Jesus hears about it from Mary. She says, They have no wine. And now, and we, as we think about this, we might, we might do well to consider just why she told Jesus about this. What was she expecting? Now we look back. In retrospect, knowing, knowing the gospel accounts, knowing how Jesus raised the dead, healed the sick, cast out demons, how he fed the 5,000 with the loaves and the fish, we, we think, well, of course, it makes perfect sense to ask Jesus. Tell, tell Jesus about it when the wine runs out. But Jesus hadn't done any of those miracles yet. Why would, why would Mary tell Jesus when the wine runs out? He hadn't healed anyone, hadn't miraculously fed anyone. Now, certainly... Mary knew of the testimonies that were given about Jesus. She was the one who had heard the angel Gabriel give that, that great announcement of who her son would be. And she had heard when Jesus was a baby the testimonies like of Simeon and Anna there in the temple. And she may well have, have known uh, these, these events here of John 1 that we looked at in recent weeks about how uh, these, these early disciples were called and how they recognized him as the Messiah and as the, the Son of God and the King of Israel. And, uh, and so she may have been speaking to him in light of all of those things, those things that she, she knew about him, knowing that he was the Messiah. But there's also a possibility that Mary was relying on her firstborn son at this time as a widowed woman. We're told nothing concerning the, the life of Joseph 
after Jesus had gone up to the temple in Luke chapter 2. That was when Jesus was 12. This is when Jesus was 30. There's a, there's a good chance the fact that we never hear about Joseph after that during the earthly ministry of Jesus, that, that Joseph was dead by this point. And so this may have been Mary doing what instinctually came to her as a widowed woman looking to her firstborn son to fix the problem. And this may be what's, what's going on here where she would turn to Jesus and all the other difficulties of life, she turned to him now as well. One way or the other, she looks to Jesus, and Jesus responds in a way of rebuke to his mother, doesn't he? In verse 4, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, when we read that in our idiom, our way of speaking, when he says, Woman, what does that have to do with us? That sounds, that sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? But uh, one, one commentator suggested, and this, this may be right, um, that, that to put it in our idiom better would be, would be almost like him saying in a southern context, ma'am, what does that have to do with us? It's not, not completely as rude as it may sound in, in our idiom, but nevertheless, this, this, is a, this is a mild reproof and rebuke here. Jesus had always been an obedient son to Mary, but now he is a grown man. He's at the outset of his ministry. And this is a reminder to Mary that she is not the one who should be calling the shots and dropping either subtle or else not so subtle hints as to what he ought to do or even giving him instructions about what he ought to be doing. She needed to learn that she's not in charge of the Messiah. He's going to be a respectful son to her, but she's not the boss. It was not for her any longer to direct her son, especially in his public ministry. It's been pointed out, and I think it's worth noting, that Jesus puts distance between his mother and himself here and at other points in the gospel so as to make clear that Mary, just like everyone else, has to relate to Jesus not on the basis of their human relationship, but rather she also, just like everyone else, has to relate to Jesus as he is the Messiah. And so Matthew chapter 12, for instance, when Jesus was told that his mother and his brothers were outside and were wanting to speak to him, Jesus didn't say, oh yeah, yeah, mom and the brothers, let them in. That's, that's fine, that's great. Jesus actually said something else. He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then pointing to his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And that's the same general dynamic that is in play here. In other words, just because Mary is the mother of Jesus, this does not allow her to dictate to the Son of God or to have special privileges even with regard to him. Jesus is about his heavenly Father's business, and that's that. But it's interesting here, isn't it, that even though Jesus had said, My hour has not come, nevertheless, he still performed the miracle. And at the end of the day, he solved the problem about which his mother was concerned. How do we make sense of this? Jesus says, on the one hand, my hour has not yet come. On the other hand, he turned the water into wine. Well, we need to be clear that in saying what he said, Jesus did not tell Mary that he would not work a miracle. He didn't say, you're not getting any wine from me. But he made it clear that she's not in charge of telling him what to do. And it's also possible that when he says, my hour has not yet come, that he was saying more 
Not so much, I'm not going to perform a miracle here, but so much as to say that the time of his public ministry and his miracles done in public for all to see had not yet come. He, we find here that when he did turn the water into wine, he did not do so in a very conspicuous manner, did he? He, he did nothing outwardly other than to simply tell the servants to fill the, the water jars with water. He uh, did not touch the water. He did not uh, bless it. All that he did is say, fill the water pots with water, draw some out, and take it to the head waiter. There's no prayer, as with the blessing of the bread for the multitude. There's no touching of the water, nothing of that nature. The miracle was worked simply by the working of his will. Jesus had, in essence, silently commanded that the water become wine, and it did. And then notice the effect of this from verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The disciples evidently were there, and they, uh, they heard what Mary said, heard what Jesus said in response, and saw what happened, how Jesus commanded the servants, how the servants obeyed, and then how the head waiter says, this is the best wine of all. They believed in Jesus as a result of having seen his glory manifested in this miracle. Now, these disciples that we looked at last week, um, Andrew, Philip, Peter, Nathaniel, and this other one who was unnamed, these men obviously already believed in Jesus, right? They proclaimed him to be the Messiah. They proclaimed him to be the one whom Moses and the prophets had spoken about. But their faith was strengthened by seeing this miracle. Seeing this miracle worked by Jesus confirmed their faith. They said, well, I already believed that this man was the Son of God. This makes me believe it even more. They had tangible evidence, and it strengthened in them their convictions that this man really is the Messiah, that he really is the Son of God, that he really is King of Israel. The miracle was a revelation of his glory, the glory that he had as God. So you couldn't tell when you were walking down the street that Jesus was God just by his appearance. But his miracles served to reveal who he really was. As Jesus would say to Philip later on, John 14, 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. The, the miracles were to lead them to believe in Jesus. And that, of course, is John's purpose in recording these things for us. John's purpose in telling us about these signs or these miracles is that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. Surely the one who can change water into wine by a mere act of the will is none other than God himself. Surely the one who can stand at the grave of Lazarus and proclaim that he himself is the resurrection and the life and then call Lazarus out of the grave and Lazarus actually gets out of the grave, this man is none other than the Lord of all. Surely the one who was crucified and buried and then walked out three days later, alive, is none other than the divine Son of God. These are the miracles that John records for us so that we might believe upon Jesus and have life in his name. And so don't miss the purpose of this miracle. It might be low-key. Certainly it was not accompanied by explicit instruction. But nevertheless, don't miss the purpose of this miracle. It was a revelation of his glory when Jesus turned the water into wine, 
and it is recorded here for us so that we too might see his glory, that we too might believe in him. And as we consider this manner of Christ attending a wedding and performing a miracle here to manifest his glory, let's allow this entire event to point us forward to another wedding feast, which is coming. This is our our third point, this other wedding feast that is coming, a wedding feast at which Christ himself will be the bridegroom and his church will be his beloved bride forever. As we read from Ephesians 5, marriage is a type of this relationship that exists between Christ and his church, this deeper relationship. And so husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church there in Ephesians 5, and wives likewise are commanded to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And the book of Revelation points us forward to these great realities coming to a consummation. And so, for instance, Revelation 19, 6 through 9, we read of where there was something like a voice of a great multitude that said, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Likewise, Isaiah of old had prophesied about this great supper in Isaiah 25 beginning in verse 6, where he said, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. My friends, there is coming this great day, a great celebration for all of God's redeemed people, the great wedding supper of the Lamb. And we read more about this in Revelation 21, where John says, And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without costs. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There is a great day of joy that is coming for all of God's people. And we we have a foretaste of it in something like the wedding celebrations that we know. There's the solemnity of the vows and the beauty of the bride, the love that the groom has for her. We have in these things a foretaste of greater things yet to come. We have a foretaste of it in the joy of the wedding dinner and in the reception that follows. 
Think back to the best celebration that you have ever been to, whether it was your own wedding or that where you were a guest. Do you remember the happiness that was there? Do you remember the joy? Wasn't it glorious? But friends, please understand, this is just a picture. Maybe it's the best tangible picture that we have and that we can get in a fallen and sinful world like this one of the joy and the blessedness and the eternal happiness that will commence on that day when the Lord God makes all things new and when our bodies are raised from the dust incorruptible and when we are made like Christ. And like Him we rise triumphant from the grave over death and hell. The weddings here are just a picture, an imperfect picture of what it will be like. So as we all know, the beautiful bride can turn into a bridezilla showing that her beauty was only skin deep. We all know that grooms who appear to be so handsome and dashing on that wedding day can turn into heartless and faithless men. But the marriage supper of the Lamb will be no such union as that. We have nothing to fear from the groom. He's already proven his faithfulness by dying for his people. What more could he do? What more could he lose? And on that great day, there will be nothing to be fearful of on our part. We will behave ourselves with godliness on that day and for all of eternity. For Christ, as we read, has loved his church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water, with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now all of us who are believers in Christ and repented and believed are right now holy and blameless In God's sight, we're perfectly justified. But as we all know, the flesh still wars against the Spirit and we still sin in many ways. But we won't anymore then when God makes all things new. And our joy at that wedding feast will not be impeded by anyone's sin, whether our own or that of others. So friends, that will be a glorious day for all who are in Christ, for those who are His bride, His church, The more we understand this glorious reality, the more we can understand why believers are those referred to by Paul in 2 Timothy 4.8 as those who have loved Christ's appearing. There's a lot to love about the day of Christ's appearing. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13 that we are to fix our hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What a great and glorious grace it will be that is brought to us on that day. The days in which we live are full of sin and wickedness, no doubt about that, but these are also days of invitation. These are the days in which the Spirit and the Bride say, come. They say, come, join yourself to Christ. Repent of your sin, believe in Him, clothe yourself in His righteousness so that you will be among Him, among those who stand before Him on that day without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Because if you are apart from Christ, You will have many spots, many wrinkles, many blemishes on you on that day. And those who are not found in Him, not found trusting in Him, will be cast away from the wedding feast. Be cast out into the darkness to the eternal punishment. And so, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, let us all pay heed to those words which Mary addressed to those servants that day at Cana. She said, whatever he says to you, do it. Obviously, those words are spoken in a particular context and for a particular purpose. But it is equally true that whatever Jesus says to us in his word, rightly understood and rightly applied to ourselves, 
we must do it. Jesus is the eternal word, the eternal son of God, the one to whom all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given. Therefore, we must listen to him. We must do what he says. Let's pray.